Chapter Five of the Mayor of Casterbridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Five. A few score yards brought them to the spot where the town band was now shaking the window panes with the strains of the roast beef of old England. The building before whose doors they had pitched their music stands was the chief hotel in Casterbridge, namely the King's Arms. A spacious bow window projected into the street over the main portico, and from the open sashes came the babble of voices, the jingle of glasses, and the drawing of corks. The blinds, moreover, being left unclosed, the whole interior of this room could be surveyed from the top of a flight of stone steps to the road-wagon office opposite for which reason a knot of idlers had gathered there. "'We might, perhaps, after all, make a few inquiries about—our relation Mr. Henchard,' whispered Mrs. Newson, who, since her entry into Casterbridge, had seemed strangely weak and agitated. "'And this, I think, would be a good place for trying it—just to ask, you know, how he stands in the town, if he is here, as I think he must be. You, Elizabeth Jane, had better be the one to do it. I'm too worn out to do anything.' "'Pull down your fall first. "'She sat down upon the lowest step, "'and Elizabeth Jane obeyed her directions "'and stood among the idlers. "'What's going on to-night?' asked the girl, "'after singling out an old man "'and standing by him long enough "'to acquire a neighbourly right of converse. "'Well, you must be a stranger, sure,' said the old man, "'without taking his eyes from the window. "'Why, tis a great public dinner of the gentle people, "'and such like leading volk with the mayor in the chair.' "'As we plainer fellows bain't invited, they leave the window-shutters open that we may get just a sense out, out here. "'If you mount the steps you can see em. "'That's Mr. Henchard, the mayor, at the end of the table, a-facing you. "'And that's the councilmen, right and left. "'Ah, lots of em when they begun life were no more than I be now.' "'Henchard,' said Elizabeth Jane, surprised, but by no means suspecting the whole force of the revelation. "'She ascended to the top of the steps.' Her mother, though her head was bowed, had already caught from the inn window tones that strangely riveted her attention before the old man's words, Mr. Henchard the mayor, reached her ears. She arose and stepped up to her daughter's side as soon as she could do so without showing exceptional eagerness. The interior of the hotel dining-room was spread out before her, with its tables and glass and plate and inmates. Facing the window, in the chair of dignity, sat a man about forty years of age, of heavy frame, large features, and commanding voice, his general build being rather coarse than compact. He had a rich complexion, which verged on swarthiness, a flashing black eye, and dark bushy brows and hair. When he indulged in an occasional loud laugh at some remark among the guests, his large mouth parted so far back as to show to the rays of the chandelier a full score or more of the two-and-thirty sound white teeth that he obviously still could boast of. That laugh was not encouraging to strangers, and hence it may have been well that it was rarely heard. Many theories might have been built upon it. It fell in well with conjectures of a temperament which would have no pity for weakness, but would be ready to yield ungrudging admiration to greatness and strength. Its producer's personal goodness, if he had any, would be of a very fitful cast, an occasional almost oppressive generosity, rather than a mild and constant kindness. 
Susan Henchard's husband, in law at least, sat before them, matured in shape, stiffened in line, exaggerated in traits, disciplined, thought-marked, in a word, older. Elizabeth, encumbered with no recollections as her mother was, regarded him with nothing more than the keen curiosity and interest which the discovery of such unexpected social standing in the long-sought relative naturally begot. He was dressed in an old-fashioned evening suit, an expanse of frilled shirt showing on his broad breast, jewelled studs and a heavy gold chain. Three glasses stood at his right hand, but, to his wife's surprise, the two for wine were empty, while the third, a tumbler, was half full of water. When last she had seen him, he was sitting in a corduroy jacket, fustian waistcoat and breeches, and tanned leather leggings, with a basin of hot firmity before him. Time, the magician, had wrought much here. Watching him, and thus thinking of past days, she became so moved that she shrank back against the jam of the wagon office doorway to which the steps gave access, the shadow from it conveniently hiding her features. She forgot her daughter till a touch from Elizabeth Jane aroused her. "'Have you seen him, mother?' whispered the girl. "'Yes, yes,' answered her companion hastily. "'I have seen him, and it is enough for me. "'Now I only want to go, pass away, die.' "'Why, oh, what?' she drew closer and whispered in her mother's ear. "'Does he seem to you not likely to befriend us? "'I thought he looked a generous man. "'What a gentleman he is, isn't he? "'And how his diamond studs shine?' "'How strange that you should have said he might be in the stocks, or in the workhouse, or dead. "'Did ever anything go more by contraries? "'Why do you feel so afraid of him? I am not at all. I'll call upon him. "'He can but say he don't own such remote kin.' "'I don't know at all. I can't tell what to set about. I feel so down.' "'Don't be that, mother. Now we have got here and all. "'Rest there where you be a little while. I will look on and find out more about him.' "'I don't think I can ever meet Mr. Henchard. "'He is not how I thought he would be. "'He overpowers me. "'I don't wish to see him any more.' "'But wait a little time and consider.' "'Elizabeth Jane had never been so much interested in anything in her life "'as in their present position, "'partly from the natural elation she felt at discovering herself akin to a coach, "'and she gazed again at the scene. "'The younger guests were talking and eating with animation.' Their elders were searching for tidbits, and sniffing and grunting over their plates like sows nuzzling for acorns. Three drinks seemed to be sacred to the company—port, sherry, and rum, outside which old established trinity few or no pallets ranged. A row of ancient rummers with ground figures on their sides, and each primed with a spoon, was now placed down the table, and these were promptly filled with grog at such high temperatures as to raise serious considerations for the articles exposed to its vapours. But Elizabeth Jane noticed that, though this filling went on with great promptness up and down the table, nobody filled the mayor's glass, who still drank large quantities of water from the tumbler behind the clump of crystal vessels intended for wine and spirits. "'They don't fill Mr. Henchard's wine-glasses,' she ventured to say to her elbow acquaintance, the old man. "'Ah, no. Don't you know him to be the celebrated abstaining worthy of that name? He scorns all tempting liquors, never touches nothing. Oh, yes, he've strong qualities that way. I have heard tell that he swear a gospel oath in bygone times, and has bowed by it ever since. So they don't press him, knowing it would be unbecoming in the face of that— 
for your gospel oath is a serious thing. Another elderly man, hearing this discourse, now joined in by inquiring, How much longer have you got to suffer from it, Solomon Longways? Another two year, they say. I don't know the why and the wherefore of his fixing such a time, for I never has told anybody. But tis exactly two calendar years longer, they say. A powerful mind to hold out so long. True, but there's great strength in hope, knowing that in four and twenty months' time you'll be out of your bondage, and able to make up for all you've suffered by partaking without stint. Why, it keeps a man up, no doubt. No doubt, Christopher Coney, no doubt. And I must need such reflections, a lonely widow man, said Longways. When did he lose his wife? asked Elizabeth. I never knowed her. "'Twas afore he came to Casterbridge,' Solomon Longways replied, with terminative emphasis, as if the fact of his ignorance of Mrs. Henchard were sufficient to deprive her history of all interest. "'But I know that as a banded teetotaler, and that if any of his men be ever so little overtook by a drop, he's down upon him as stern as the Lord upon the jovial Jews.' "'Has he many men, then?' said Elizabeth Jane. "'Many? Why, my good maid, he's the powerfulest member of the town council.' "'and quite a principal man in the country round, besides. "'Never a big dealing in wheat, barley, oats, hay, roots, and such like, "'but Henchard's got a hand in it. "'Ay, and he'll go into other things, too, "'and that's where he makes his mistake. "'He worked his way up from nothing when I came here, "'and now he's a pillar of the town, "'not but what he's been shaken a little to year "'about this bad corn he has supplied in his contracts.' "'I've seen the sun rise over Durnover Moor these nine-and-sixty year, "'and though Mr. Henchard has never cussed me unfairly, "'ever since I've worked for him, seeing I be but a little small man, "'I must say that I have never before tasted such rough bread "'as has been made from Henchard's wheat lately. "'Tis that growed out that you could a'most call it malt, "'and there's a list at bottom of the loaf as thick as the sole of one's shoe.' "'The band now struck up another melody, "'and by the time it was ended the dinner was over.' and speeches began to be made. The evening being calm, and the windows still open, these orations could be distinctly heard. Henchard's voice arose above the rest. He was telling a story of his hay-dealing experiences, in which he had outwitted a sharper who had been bent upon outwitting him. "'Ha, ha, ha!' responded his audience at the upshot of the story, and hilarity was general till a new voice arose with, "'This is all very well, but how about the bad bread?' It came from the lower end of the table, where there sat a group of minor tradesmen, who, although part of the company, appeared to be a little below the social level of the others, and who seemed to nourish a certain independence of opinion, and carry on discussions not quite in harmony with those at the head, just as the west end of a church is sometimes persistently found to sing out of time and tune with the leading spirits in the chancel. This interruption about the bad bread afforded infinite satisfaction to the loungers outside, several of whom were in the mood which finds its pleasure in others' discomfiture, and hence they echoed pretty freely, "'Hey, how about the bad bread, Mr. Mayor?' Moreover, feeling none of the restraints of those who shared the feast, they could afford to add, "'You rather ought to tell the story of that, sir.' The interruption was sufficient to compel the Mayor to notice it. "'Well, I admit that the wheat turned out badly,' he said, "'but I was taken in and buying it as much as the bakers who bought it of me.' "'And the poor folk who had to eat it, whether or no,' said the inharmonious man outside the window. Henchard's face darkened. There was temper under the thin, bland surface, 
The temper which, artificially intensified, had banished a wife nearly a score of years before. "'You must make allowances for the accidents of a large business,' he said. "'You must bear in mind that the weather just at the harvest of that corn was worse than we have known it for years. However, I have mended my arrangements on account of it. Since I have found my business too large to be well looked after by myself alone, I have advertised for a thorough good man as manager of the corn department. When I've got him, you will find these mistakes will no longer occur. Matters will be better looked into.' "'But what are you going to do to repay us for the past?' inquired the man who had before spoken, and who seemed to be a baker or miller. "'Will you replace the grown flour we've still got by sound grain?' Henchard's face had become still more stern at these interruptions, and he drank from his tumbler of water as if to calm himself or gain time. Instead of vouchsafing a direct reply, he stiffly observed, "'If anybody will tell me how to turn grown wheat into wholesome wheat, I'll take it back with pleasure, but it can't be done.' Henchard was not to be drawn again. Having said this, he sat down. End of chapter 5